The first reading is taken from the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 19 to 40, and can be found on page 826 of the Church Pew Bibles. So it's Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 19 to 40. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust, there may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion, so great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men, to crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to deny a man his rights before the Most High, to deprive a man of justice. Would not the Lord see such things? Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come. Why should any living man complain when punished for his sins? Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. The second reading is taken from Romans, chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, and can be found on page 1139. Romans 12, chapter, verses 9 to 21. Love. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. On, Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal but keep your spiritual fever, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice mourn with those who mourn. 
Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it, is, as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to just add a few words of introduction uh, for Colin this evening, Colin Chapman. Uh, Colin and his family and my family, we've been friends for many years. And um, we have been colleagues in CMS, the Church Mission Society, and we've worked uh, not always in the same place at the same time, but uh, in various parts of North Africa, Egypt, and the, and the Middle East. Colin has worked for many years in, in Beirut especially. He's been a theological educator and has trained many of the Christian leaders of the Middle East. He's also been a very important and significant writer. And uh, a number of his books have been really important in the education of uh, the Christian public in this country on crucial subjects. Um, his most uh, famous book, I think that's the right word to use, is Whose Promised Land, uh, which came out in 1983, I think, um, and has been updated, enlarged, adapted according to the changing situation in the Middle East. And it is, the title tells you what it's about. It's about the big questions in Christian theology about uh, the Holy Land, about Israel, ancient Israel, and modern Israel, all the questions surrounding that. Um, and this book has, had, has been a really, really important uh, contribution to Christian understanding in the West and in this country. So it's a, a privilege to have him with us this evening. I'm delighted Colin has been able to come. I asked him if he would address two subjects uh, at this service and at 7 o'clock. At this service, I asked him to speak, uh, at least in part, about the situation of Christian communities in the Middle East today, um, their vulnerability, their future, their, their status. Um, and in the following service, he's going to speak about, in particular, about the, the possibilities of peace uh, between Israel and Palestine. So uh, it's a joy to have a, a good friend here with us. It's also a privilege for all of us to have uh, Colin amongst us this evening. Perhaps I could pray for him uh, just before he speaks. Father, we thank you for the grace you give to your people in so many ways and the gifts that you give to them. We thank you for your gifts on Colin's life and on his ministry. And we pray your blessing and your enabling of him as he speaks to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Andy didn't mention that I had the privilege of teaching him at Trinity College Bristol when he was training for ordination. Um, 
So I had the task of setting him difficult questions for his examinations. Now he has an opportunity to get his, back, his own back because he set me a difficult question for this first session. This was it. Christians and Muslims in the Middle East, future possibilities. So we're talking about how Christians and Muslims get on in a region where everything seems to be falling apart. The civil war in Syria has created the biggest humanitarian disaster since the Second World War. There are also civil wars in Iraq, Yemen and Libya and Egypt. And, and Egypt, after the great hopes of the Arab Spring, has reverted to a one-party state. The conflict between Israel and the Palestinians shows no signs of ending, and the US and Russia are being sucked into a whole series of proxy wars that are being fought out right across the region. So this is the context in which Muslims and Christians are trying to live side by side. How do they get on with each other? What are the prospects for the future? And how can we help our fellow Christians in the region? I want to take as my starting point the two readings. Maybe you're wondering why on earth I chose those two readings. The first comes from the book of Lamentations, which is a book that meant a great deal to me as I lived with my family through the Lebanese Civil War, which began in 1975. The prophet Jeremiah witnessed the capture and destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586, and some of what he wrote could have been written to describe Beirut and its destruction. But he still believed that God, is the God who is a God of justice is the Lord of history. So he asks, why has God allowed this to happen? And where have we gone wrong as a nation? And it's in this context of turmoil and suffering that he writes the words about the faithfulness and the compassion of God that we all know so well. In the second reading, Paul is writing to a small Christian community in Rome in the capital city. They are a tiny, powerless minority. And among other things, he says to them, if it's at all possible, live at peace with everyone and overcome evil with good. I suspect that Christians in the Middle East today feel just as powerless and vulnerable as the Christian community in Rome to which Paul wrote his letter. Now, if we're trying to focus on Christians and Muslims in the Middle East, I believe we have to begin by asking, what's the problem? And let me tell you five major factors that create the problem. The first is 14 centuries of Islamic domination. Muhammad began his ministry in Mecca as a persecuted prophet. When he moved to Mecca, he created a Muslim community, which Muslims generally see as the first Islamic state. And they look back to that as a kind of golden age. And before his death, almost the whole of Arabia had accepted his political leadership and the religion of Islam. After his death, his followers burst out of Arabia and began conquering the whole of the region, so that a hundred years after his death, there was a great Islamic empire that stretched from France and Spain in the west to the borders of India and China in the east. But it's important to understand that the majority of the population 
in the areas which they ruled were Christians. In fact, it was something similar to the British Raj in India, where a few thousand Brits ruled over a whole continent. In the same way, a few thousand Arab Muslims ruled over a population which was largely Christian. These Christians were tolerated but treated as second-class citizens and had to pay a special tax as a sign of their submission to Islamic rule. After a time, of course, more and more Christians, for a variety of reasons, accepted the religion of their conquerors. But it wasn't until the 11th century that the Muslims became a majority. So for much of the time, Christians experienced pressures of different kinds, and at certain times there was real persecution. The Mongol invasion of the 14th century had devastating consequences for the Christian communities. In the 20th century, the Armenian genocide and other conflicts mean that, have meant that the proportion of Christians has de declined very considerably. The point I'm making is that we can't begin to understand the present situation of Muslims and Christians in the Middle East without understanding something of this long history. For Muslims, it has been utterly natural for them to be ruling over Christians because it's a basic Muslim conviction that Islam must rule. The state should ideally be Islamic and the whole community living under the law of God. Second factor, two centuries of Western interference and imperialism. 1798 is an important date because Napoleon's invasion of Egypt, which lasted only three years, marks a beginning of Western European intrusion into the region. Then in 1862, Britain took control of Egypt and ruled it in one way or another till the 1950s. The British government, through the Balfour Declaration in 1917, expressed support for the Zionist movement. And at the same time, we were promising the Arabs independence if they would help us to drive the Ottoman Turks out of Palestine. After World War I, Britain and France sat round the table, literally, and carved up the whole region, with France taking colonial responsibility for Syria and Lebanon, and Britain taking responsibility for Iraq and Palestine. When in the 1950s all the countries of the region gained some kind of independence, Western powers were still interfering directly or indirectly in order to advance their own interests. When they did really become independent, it wasn't long before in most countries there was a coup which installed a military dictatorship. So instead of gradually developing into parliamentary democracies, countries like Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and Libya became one-party police states like the one-party police states in Eastern Europe. Western interference in the region, therefore, has played a major role in contributing to the situation that we see today. And I believe it's important that we in Britain should own up to our share of responsibility for the conflicts that are unfolding today. And to complicate things further, since the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979, Iran has, become, has been throwing its weight around in the region. And in the last few years, and especially the last few months and weeks, Russia has been doing all it can to become a major player and extend its power and influence. 
Number three, a multiplicity of conflicts. There isn't just one conflict, there are many. Because of what's happened in recent years, there's a whole variety of conflicts being played out in the region. The conflict between Israel and the Palestinians has drawn the whole of the Arab world in and much of the Muslim world. The conflict between Sunnis and Shiites has become a bitter conflict that is both religious and political. And so, so now we have a whole series of proxy wars. A very good Lebanese friend of mine that I've known for 40 years explained to me what a proxy war is. Imagine that you're playing a game of chess. It's just you and one other person. You've got the board in front of you. But then you suddenly realize that your chessboard is part of a bigger chessboard. And a group of people on this side are playing chess against a group of people on this side using your pieces. So you think you're playing one game of chess and you're in control, but you're not. Because there's a whole number of other people on both sides who are playing their games against each other using your pieces. The upheavals in Syria started as a purely local and national protest against a corrupt dictatorship. But then foreign fighters were sucked in from all over the world, and then the great powers have been drawn in, with Russia, Iran, and Hezbollah in Lebanon supporting the Assad government, and the United States and the EU supporting the resistance to Assad. A Syrian pastor said to me in Beirut in January of last year, we are suffering from the game of nations. Number four, a, a struggle for the soul of Islam. Who re represents real, true Islam? Which of all the different kinds of Muslims is nearer to the spirit of the Prophet Muhammad and the teachings of the Quran? Is it the so-called Islamic State? Is it the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt who tried through President Sisi in the space of a single year to impose an Islamic constitution on Egypt? Is it moderate Muslims who want some kind of secular state but a state in which Islamic principles are practiced? Is it the Sufis, the mystics who are more interested in spirituality than, prof than, than politics? Is it Muslims in Europe who realize that they are a minority but who want to take part in the democratic processes and would like to see Islamic principles recognized in the public sphere. Who then is going to win the struggle, this battle for the soul of Islam? And while this battle is raging, there are many Muslims who are becoming thoroughly disillusioned with religion and rejecting Islam altogether. So in Iraq, for example, there are now quite a number of Muslims who would call themselves quite openly atheists. Five, the dilemma of Christians. With this background, can we put, begin to put ourselves into the shoes of Christians throughout the Middle East and understand how they feel? They are proud of 20 centuries of history in which they have been rooted in the region. Egyptian Christians see themselves as the descendants of the pharaohs, and are so proud of Mark who brought the gospel to Egypt and at the early centuries when the vast majority of Egyptians were Christians. 
they would want to say to the Muslims, you Arabs came here in the seventh century as invaders, as foreigners. We are the real descendants of the ancient Egyptians. And in Lebanon, similarly, the Christians see themselves as the descendants of the Phoenicians. In Iraq, the in the first centuries, there were dozens of bishoprics and hundreds of monasteries, the oldest of which, as you've probably seen, has been razed to the ground in recent weeks. But these Christians can't forget the many centuries in which they were second-class citizens living under Muslim rule. So we have to understand that because of all this history, many, if not most, Middle Eastern Christians don't have warm feelings about Muslims and Islam. A Lebanese Christian summed up his feelings to me some years ago like this. We fear them and despise them at the same time. When I was teaching at Bethlehem Bible College a few years ago, one of the ladies in the class said with some feeling, talking about Chris, how Christians felt about Muslims, Nihna majruheen, she said in Arabic, we're wounded. And since they feel so many economic and political pressures, and since so many Christians have emigrated to the West and to Australia in the last century, it's very natural that many of them want to emigrate to join their families. So the Christian communities all over the region are suffering a severe hemorrhaging because of emigration. 20 years ago, there were around one and a half million Christians in Iraq, and there are now about 300,000. In Bethlehem, the Christian population used to be the majority, but they are now well under 30%. A friend who has recently visited Gaza tells me that out of a number of Christian families who obtained permission from the Israeli authorities to go to the West Bank for Christmas to celebrate Christmas, 20 families have remained there and are now living as illegal immigrants in the West Bank. Are we beginning to understand what the problems are for Christians in the Middle East. Some of you, of course, may be frustrated, and instead of telling wonderful stories of conversions, I've talked so much about history and politics. Or you may be asking if the general situation for Christians is so depressing, is there anything positive and encouraging that we can say? Is the future really bleak? So let me go on to suggest some ways forward and the time is limited so I'm going to have to make this shorter. Once again I've got five points and the first has to do with developing relationships with Muslims. I hope I said enough to explain that there are very good reasons why Christians often feel very cool towards Muslims but I can think of several examples of Christians in the Middle East who are overcoming their fears and prejudices and doing all they can to reach out to Muslims in genuine friendship. I think of Martin Akkad, who, is, who heads up the Institute of Middle Studies in Beirut. He's made very good friends with some Muslim leaders and academics in, the, in, in Beirut. One of them is the head of the Islamic court in Sidon. And last year, Martin took Sheikh Mohammed to the prayer breakfast in Washington. Bishop Munir in Egypt, and you probably have heard a lot about him, has developed really close personal relationships with the Grand Mufti and the head of the Al-Azhar University. He and his wife Nancy often visit, visit them, 
and their wives, and there's a really good chemistry between them. Developing relationships with Muslims. Secondly, understanding Islam and engaging in serious dialogue. If your people have lived as a minority under Muslim rule for centuries and sometimes experienced persecution, you probably don't feel that you, you probably feel that you've seen the worst faces of Islam. And you probably don't feel intellectually curious about Islam and don't really want to understand it. But if Christians are to live alongside Muslims, I believe it's very important that they should have a sympathetic and critical understanding of Islam. When I was teaching Islamic studies at the Near East School of Theology in Beirut for, for, for several years, I found that for the students, Islam was the last subject they wanted to study. We came to study theology in the Bible. Why do we need to study Islam? But if we're a tiny minority living in the Muslim world, surely we've got to do our utmost to try and understand our Muslim neighbors. At the beginning of a course on the Quran, the daughter of a Syrian pastor admitted that although she had learned about Islam at school, she had never actually opened the Quran. Four years ago, I was teaching a course on Islam at Bethlehem Bible College to a group of Israeli Arabs and to a group of Israeli Arabs students in Galilee. And for many of them, it was the very first time that they had studied the Quran. So understanding Islam ought to help us in engaging in serious dialogue with Muslims. And understanding Islam in this way will not mean that we will approach them in an attacking and polemical way, but it means that we'll be able to engage them in serious dialogue. Number three, showing compassion and meeting human need. When Jesus worked miracles, it wasn't just to provide evidence of who he was. We are told in several places in the Gospels that he had compassion. It's the compassion of Jesus that has always driven Christians to reach out to their neighbors and to meet desperate needs. And the parable of the Good Samaritan reminds us that loving our neighbor means doing something very practical and costly for any person in need. I remember the Bishop of Jerusalem some years ago speaking about schools, hospitals and clinics and other institutions that they run in the diocese and describing them as the arms and legs of the church. And of course, in most of these institutions, the vast majority are Muslims. In the Diocese of Egypt, which is tiny in comparison with the Diocese of Guildford, there are many institutions, a school for the deaf, a hospital in, in, in Manouf and clinics. In Aden, there is an Anglican church, and before the trouble started, it was very active with an eye clinic on the compound that was meeting a real need in the country. So showing compassion and meeting human need. Four, working for justice. Many of the young people who took part in those huge demonstrations in Tahrir Square in Cairo five years ago were motivated by a passion for justice. They were protesting against dictatorship, corruption, inequality, unemployment, and poor economic prospects. And Islamists have used the dialogue, Islam is the solution although it's hard to see that they have succeeded anywhere. So is it possible to create a more just society? And can Christians 
play any part in this process. I'm encouraged to find many Christians coming out of their ghettos and trying to make a real difference as salt and light in their societies. Point number five, communicating the gospel. If some of you are wondering why this wasn't at the top of my list of five, I hope it's obvious by now that our communication of the gospel is so much more effective when Christians are doing all the other things that I have mentioned. I have been amazed at the way in which so many Christians in recent years have developed a holy boldness, have recovered their confidence in the gospel, and are very open in the way they communicate the message. The Bible Society of Egypt, for example, has been extremely active, producing new editions of the, of the scriptures, DVDs, CDs. At the Cairo Book Fair every year, which takes place around now, they have at least five booths, and hundreds, thousands of people come to buy scriptures in Arabic and DVDs and films. In the recent report from the director, he spoke about one particular man who came and was so glad a Muslim and paid one Egyptian pound, which is worth about 10 pence, to buy his own copy of the scriptures. As you drive on the motorway between Cairo and Alexandria, there's a huge billboard advertising the Bible, the Bible Society, and a number. If you phone that number, you can get somebody to bring a copy of the Bible or the New Testament to your door. It's a kind of dial-a-pizza, dial-a-Bible. You've heard of Alpha. The Alpha has been translated into Arabic and is being widely used, especially in Lebanon and other places, in many denominations, not just Protestant churches. There's another course called Al-Masira, which is much, much more contextualized and directed as Muslims. And many of you have no doubt heard of Sat7, Christian Satellite Television, which has been going in the Middle East for, for 20 years. They now have programs 24 hours a day in Arabic, in Farsi for Iran, and in Turkish. The primary audience is Christians, but they know jolly well that many, many Muslims are watching these programs. And it's not just talking heads. There are programs addressing real issues in everyday life, and 80% of the programs are produced by Arabic-speaking Christians. As a result of this kind of communication of the gospel, men, in recent years, many Muslims, an increasing number of Muslims, have become believers. And I'm sure you're aware of an Iranian church in London, for example, and other groups of, of, of what we call Muslim background believers. So had I, have I said enough to help you to understand some of the complexities of the Middle East and to feel what it's like to be a Muslim or a Christian in Egypt, Syria, or Iraq. I've tried to be honest and realistic in spelling out some of the difficulties that Christians face because of all the pressures, political, religious, social, and economic. It's really hard to predict the future of Christianity in the Middle East. Some people, like the American historian Philip Jenkins, is, feels quite pessimistic about the future of, of Christianity and feels that there won't be any Christians in 20 or 30 years. But in spite of, and perhaps even because of all the political disasters, 
And because of all the things that I know Christians are doing, I don't share his pessimism. Like the, like the writer of Lamentations, I remain hopeful. And I end with some startling words from another Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, where God says, forget the former things and do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Could it be that God is challenging us, all of us, to look forward to and somehow to be involved in the new things that he is doing in the Middle East at the present time? Thank you, Colin, very much. That's a really valuable summary and of, uh, introduction to the, the key issues in the Middle East for, for Christians. Um, Colin's address will be on uh, our website in the week. I really encourage you and invite others to listen to it again to really absorb some of that information. And it's really important both to see the depth of challenge that Christians face in the Middle East and also the, uh, the extraordinary uh, signs of hope that emerge in a situation of such uh, pain and, and struggle. So thank you, Colin, very much for bringing that all together for us, and I really encourage you to uh, uh, visit it again. Colin's book, Whose Promised Land, is, will be available at the back of church at the end of the service. It's a special price to us of £8 a volume, so I encourage you to, to buy that. We're now going to take... Uh, communion. Uh, I'll go to the table now and then I invite you just to stay where you are quietly in prayer for a moment.